Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great day. This week we are talking to Lauren Walsh. Lauren is a highly accomplished artist who has built a very rewarding career out of a passion for making fan art. This is a little unconventional as the common consensus is that this is a little unconventional as the common consensus often tells us that doing such a thing can be very difficult. Typically, the expectation is that building a following around the fan art you make is that people will expect only that from you and branching out into other formats, forums, or subject matter will have negative repercussions on income streams and follower base and all of the things that an independent artist needs to keep their livelihood afloat. Lauren's experience shows us that this is not necessarily true and that building a support network through fan art can actually lead to great opportunities. Lauren would say that she has been fortunate or lucky, but of course we have to keep in mind the old adage about luck. It is the intersection of preparation and opportunity. Lauren truly exemplifies this. Her passion, determination, and preparation put her in the right position for opportunity to knock, and she was ready when it did. We can learn a lot from hearing her story, so let's listen. Hello. Pretending that this is the first time I've ever seen you. Hello. You weren't here for 15 <laughs> minutes before. Lauren, thank you so, no. so. Look at me. I've just entered the room. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for being here. This is a, an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, let's jump right to it. Um, please tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into art? And what really caved in and trapped you in the mine of art forever? Well... To be fair, I was doomed from birth. <laughs> um, yeah, no, art for me has just been one of those things that I've basically done my whole life, really. Um, like a lot of like my earliest memories were of just like drawing underneath my like desk chair and stuff like that. Um, so it's just like constantly been something that's around me. Um, I did not introduce myself. Hi, I'm Lauren Walsh. I'm an illustrator in the fantasy art sector. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I got into art very young. Parents kind of fostered it, like that kind of thing. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a long journey. I don't know if I <laughs> should really go into it, like at the top of the interview here. But yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> Yeah, no, getting into it uh, is great. Um, you know, you, you said that you were from an early age, um, you know, really like kind of feeling the power and feeling the draw. Um, was Were you just kind of like 
doodling or messing around or like from a really early age you were like i'm serious about this i want to do this all the time um yeah no art was definitely very more of like a doodling type thing um specifically like as a mid-range millennial (laughs) um i was as with most maybe i would assume i was obsessed with jurassic park and dinosaurs so i got like really into drawing dinosaurs and then it became horses and then the late 90s hit and then like pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh was a thing and then i was obsessed with Yu-Gi-Oh and putting belts on every character i ever made (laughs) um and then after that it was kind of like I drew a lot. I was really into mythology, like Greek, Roman, and Egyptian, and like just like reading Greek tragedies at a very young age. So I was a complete nerd. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, just really got into fan art, like from an early age, really. Um, and then I became obsessed with, you know, like Inuyasha and bleach and um naruto and just like completely fell down the anime hole and then was just like i'm never getting out of this ever again (laughs) you know um but uh yeah and like from there it was just like the two mixed because it was like there was so much fan art around those ips that like if you were into those things very often you were also drawing fan art of those things and even if it was just like a little doodle you know, like everyone's at least tried to draw Pikachu at least once. Right. And, um, and it just kind of like was always a fan art and art were always a part of every fandom I was obsessed with. And yeah, just kind of went that way. Eventually my parents were like, Hey, you have a skill. We should try and foster that. And in high school, my parents, um, as with most parents, no one really knew at the time what illustration meant. Or like that that animation and this crazy new fad called anime um, was an actual viable career. So it was very much a like, hey, you're drawing. Let's get you into some fine art fine art courses. And then you go into the fine art world, and the fine art world's like, anime is horrible. Why are you drawing art like that? Why are you drawing fan art? Like this is not how art's supposed to be. So you're like constantly fighting this like this one side of the art world who's like, that's trash. And then the other side where you're like, but I just want to draw cute anime girls all day. Like, why can't I do that? You know? Um, so yeah. So I had like a, in high school, I had like a master painter, like um, he actually did a lot of like iconography and stuff like that. And he kind of like taught me how to like do inking and copy masterwork a lot in like high school. Um, and uh yeah and i forgot to mention i also didn't go to high school i was homeschooled so a lot of this had to be done on the side and yeah i always kind of wonder a lot like if i had been in public school if if an art teacher would have been like hey let's go support this and instead it was kind of like forced down this like religious side of art instead but that's besides the point that's a whole other discussion (laughs) A rare chance, as far as I, I can tell. Uh, most public high school uh, art teachers are um, just there for the paycheck. They might not even be trained in art. So There you go. <laughs> All right, and, so it was good then. <laughs> even if they are trained in art, it's uh, there. there's some kind of 
uh, weird miasma that you walk into as a teacher in public school that just like so at some point uh, all your hopes and dreams are crushed and you just stop caring at some point even if this mm. is like a passion of yours so yeah mm. as as somebody that i not to make this about me but i went to a high no, school no no please <laughs> i went to a high school that was um like arts and um uh like performing and visual arts centric and mm -hmm. it was still trash mm, so okay. it's like yeah it's definitely more the rule than the exception that like public schools just don't deliver this is this is great for me. This eases my anxiety that I didn't miss out on a lot, you know? <laughs> there you go. I okay. will say that was the one benefit of homeschooling was that you could, if you wanted to learn something and you wanted to hyper, which, you know, should have been knock, knock number one, that your daughter has ADHD. Um, if you want to hyper focus on something, you can, and you can just go hog wild on that thing. Um, but yeah, anyway, sorry. <laughs> No, no, it's all good. Yeah, so y you started uh, getting this more like kind of focused attention uh, in high school. And then so that was that just like a direct line to like, okay, you're going to go to college for this? Um, no, <laughs> I, to me, my art has always kind of been a thing I did, but I was extremely self-conscious of. Like, I refused to let people see my work. I would hide it. In some cases, I would literally just like put it in a binder and then shove it under my bed and never let anyone see it kind of thing. Um, and high school, uh, after high school, um, at first my dad wanted me to get a business degree. And then I was like, nah, I want to go for English. I want to learn how to write. I want to learn how to tell stories. Because like that was my other interest was mythology and like you know, um, telling stories and comics and stuff. So I was just like, I want to learn how to write. I want to learn how to tell a story. And, um, and they were like, sure, great. Go for your dreams. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. Got it. Um, and luckily I went to Penn state. So I was pretty much any department you wanted to go to was good. Like if it was, it may not have been top tier of the country in any way, but like it was a good program. So, um, so I got my degree in English. And then in my senior year, my parents were like, hey, you should really go like get a degree in art as well. And they were like, you know, you would really like you would regret it if you didn't. And then I was like, OK, fine. More debt. Fine. <laughs> like, you know, um, and then I spent like two years pursuing my art degree after that and um, finished up, graduated and then just hit the void of post-college and then didn't draw for five years. <laughs> oh, talk about that. Wait, what happened there? Um, you know, it's a, so actually I run into this a lot with students and I kind of warn, cause I also teach um, at more college of art. And I talk to students about this a lot where you go to school and especially with art school too, where the professor and the teacher is like driving you. They're like, hey, do this project, do that project. And like, you have all of these like um, projects that you have to get done by a certain date. They're basically your art director, essentially. And, um, and then you graduate. And then especially with like the fine art world, because again, I got a degree in fine arts. I did not get a degree in illustration or anything like that. And um, the fine art world is even more inaccessible than the illustration track. If I would, I mean, that's how I felt. I don't know if 
people feel that way too. Um, but uh, yeah, I kind of got spit up and chewed out by the fine art world because I was a digital artist. I was folk. I wanted to create the artwork that I was obsessed with. Like I wanted to create the magic, the gathering cards that I was obsessed with and the D and D artwork that I was obsessed with. And I couldn't, every artist I saw, I was like, they're all doing Photoshop. They're all using a tablet. Like I need to learn how to do digital art and the fine art world does, you know, you may as well just say that you don't even draw at that point. Like, you know, <laughs> um, and I'd understand why they need to sell the original. It has to be all this other stuff. And it just was not a fit for me and just ended up crashing and burning. And that was a huge, a huge blow. And then I think with most, um, most artists, most most artists who are also gay ended up working at Starbucks for five years. So, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but after that, I because uh, my my journey again, my journey is really random. Um, but I actually became obsessed with this was what the late like late two thousands, early to, like twenty like like 2010s kind of era. And um, I got bit by the World of Warcraft bug and ended up just like spending way too much time on Azeroth. And uh, yeah, yeah. Top tier rating, am I right? Hey. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I kind of like got bit by that bug and then I was obsessed with like drawing my own, my own character and it was around the launch of Missa Pandaria they had just announced it and I drew in Photoshop. I had my sister pose for me. I got all these references and I actually drew my character exploring Pandaria for the first time and posted it on DeviantArt and then posted it on Reddit. And the Blizzard Facebook moderator found it on Reddit and then posted it on Facebook, which at the time was king of social media. And um, that was like my first moment of like a virality and be realizing that people liked my work and that fan art was something that could actually drive you forward with your career. Um, so yeah, without spending way too much time playing World of Warcraft, who knows where I would have been. <laughs> Do you still remember the uh, feeling of euphoria you felt when you saw that, uh, that, that repost on Facebook? Oh, to be fair, I didn't know what happened. Like, I, I literally, like, at the time... I was maybe getting five to 10 views per picture um, that I was posting on DeviantArt at the time. And all of a sudden I woke up and there were 10,000 views. And I was like, what just happened? What's going on? <laughs> like, and um, which at the time for earlier internet time, that was a lot of views, you know? Um, and it's a lot now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh yeah no it was just really intense like it was to be honest it was just like it, it felt like a constant rising note the entire time and you're just like what's going on what's going on what's going on and like but there was also this sense of just like wait can this be a thing can i do this you know and um yeah that's kind of like how i kind of started going down that road basically <laughs> i i've been told in the past that uh if you can have you have memories of those feelings of uh, elation of something that's positive success? Um, if you're in the dumps, if you think back to that set and you can actually feel it yourself, it'll uh, help pick you up and push you through whatever's uh, blocking you. 
Okay, that's interesting. Uh, I wow that that got me thinking now about like you know like negative uh, feelings and how like it's that's probably like you know this self perpetuating thing because you're it's very easy to remember negative experiences and remember those emotions. So you can easily get locked into this feedback cycle, right? Of like, oh, I, that felt like shit. Um, I I felt like I was a piece of shit. Maybe I am a piece of shit. Uh, I am a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would say that it's a double-edged sword for sure. Um, this is actually kind of like one of those big ones where so many times on Twitter, you'll have like larger creators who are like, please don't worry about the numbers. Please don't worry about them. And it comes from that sense of being like, I've had multiple viral hits and each one, like maybe not, well, I guess I have, I, well, what, besides the point, <laughs> um, but you get to a point where there's the flip of it. You, we can, you can either embrace the, like, Hey, I did this once I can do that. Or you have the flip of that where it goes, why can't you get those numbers again? What's wrong about your art now? that you can't get those views that you once got. And that can kind of get into imposter syndrome territory, obviously. Um, but that was a big one for me because I had a piece on Instagram that got 50,000 likes. And I was just kind of like, it was that same elation. And you kind of start to realize that social media is designed for this kind of like gambling hit and miss kind of feeling. And what I've come to realize, and I think a lot of larger creators too, is like, guys, we're all playing a roulette table here and some of us have more chips on the table and we can get more hits. And, um, but it's still, there's still a crash that can happen after. And like, you have to be careful of your psyche in that moment. Cause it can be, it can be hard. <laughs> like when you go from like 50,000 likes to only a thousand, your mind kind of goes, well, what did I do wrong? What did I, did I displease Instagram and Mark Zuckerberg? Like, what did I do? You know. uh, I helped um, Steve Sketches run his Instagram account while that was still active. And um, one of his pieces got like 40,000 likes, 70,000 likes, that sort of thing. And then there was a post that uh, I was tracking how many likes per minute it was getting in the first uh, 30 minutes because that actually mm -hmm. has a big factor. And one piece that I thought was cool uh, was only getting 1,000 likes in the first hour. And that meant it was like doomed to failure in mm -hmm. the algorithm. So we took it down because we thought it would actually hurt his account if it uh, had stayed up and continued getting rejected by the people that should have been liking it, but weren't or could have been liking it, weren't. Yeah. So it, it just, in, I, it wasn't even my account and I felt terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I can steal some of Moose's words, uh, you know, in the, in the past Moose, you've mentioned that idea of the ceiling, you know, where like if you hit 50,000 views on a, on a post, that's your new ceiling. That's your mm -hmm. new objective. And that, and, and, you know, or, or what, whatever huge, massive number, you know, your viral hit is, that's your new ceiling. And now you're, now you're a striving. So then if you get a hundred thousand followers or likes on something or now that's it. And mm -hmm. the truth is that like all of these ceilings are illusory and, and illusions. Yeah. And they're also implemented by an algorithm. So that's where it's like, Hey, got to separate yourself from your artwork. Like you have to protect yourself especially with social media like it's it could <laughs> oof <laughs> yeah no i i i, I want to circle back to this uh yeah. this tangent um oh but, absolutely yeah but um but to continue with the the sort of the fan art trajectory um 
you know, you said that that was sort of like a little peek into the window of what was possible. So if you can like draw the line from that to when you really started getting moving with, uh, with fan art, like what was that like to when that was the regular thing that you were posting on social media and getting attention for? Um, I would say, so there's like two phases to that for me specifically, where one, I was like deep into the World of Warcraft scene. And I, I will say like, that was one thing about commissions too, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which was I was in the World of Warcraft community. And that community at the time, because you couldn't, you couldn't customize anything, wanted character art of their characters the way they were seeing it in their own head, similar to like D&D &D and stuff. And that community was like, we want to support you. We love you. You know, like that kind of thing. And then there was this kind of like period of time where, you know, World of Warcraft kind of fell out. It wasn't as cool anymore. No one really wanted to talk about like it was the diehards were there and they've been there for every expansion. Um, and myself, you know, I've played every expansion. I mean, currently, I I can't really support <laughs> The company, given a lot of the stuff that's come out, which really is like a heartbreak for me, honestly, like that, that has always been like a big part. Anyway, that is a whole other discussion. Um, but I got into this point where I was like, hey, my art is not doing well on Instagram. And at the time, Instagram was king. Um, Twitter was not what it was. TikTok didn't even exist. Like, you had DeviantArt, you had Tumblr. Um, but at the time, t uh, Instagram was the number one. And I noticed a consistent theme with Instagram that it was always these like large eye, large lip, very like Instagram girl kind of art. And I kind of like fed into that and was like, hey, I'll draw this for a while and see what happens. And then my Instagram took off, but I was not, it wasn't vibing with me. Like I was like, I want to draw elves. I don't want to keep drawing these like, you know, Fisco e-girls all the time. Like I want to be, I want to draw elves doing cool stuff and girls with swords. Like that's what I want to do. And, um, and I noticed that Twitter was much more receptive to that and, um, and just kind of like started doing that. And then, you know, it's like, Hey, I like this show called critical role. Maybe I can post some artwork of that. And then it was just like, and I was just like, Oh my God. And ever since then, I feel like I've been strapped on the front of a rocket and I'm just like constantly just like, ah, like, just like going crazy. <laughs> like, um, but, uh, yeah, so that's kind of like that. That's kind of like the whole trajectory for me. <laughs> and what was the connection point? to like getting commissions and like starting to get paid for this. You were saying that you, that people wanted to see their world of Warcraft characters created. Mm -hmm. Um, like how, well, there's like three questions I'm trying to ask all at once. Oh, that's first, fine. <laughs> at first I would, I, I guess I would like to know like how, um, how did you start finding, uh, what would be like fair compensation? This is always like a topic that we're interested in. Uh, and especially when it's in this nebulous world of like, uh, you know, personal commissions and stuff, were you undercharging? Were you pretty good about getting to like a fair price quickly? How did you start determining that? <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> so in the beginning I was doing, uh, I was doing character portraits for $50. Wouldn't exactly say that that was compensated. Well, um, 
to actually to the point, I was even on a project that was, I was working 40 hours a week. It was like a small game kind of thing. And I was working my butt off and I was getting paid $100 a week for nearly like $40 worth, 40 hours worth of work a week. And it got to a point where I I was hella depressed at the time because I was just like, I'm working my butt off. I'm barely making any money. How does anybody do this? And um, it got to a point where despite the fact that I was living with my parents, like my parents were not nice enough to let me stay at the house, but they couldn't afford to like take care of me. You know, like I still had to make money and like take care of my own bills, like all that kind of stuff. And, um, and I actually like had to get food stamps at the time. And I called cause they have to do an interview. If you ever had to get food stamps before they have to do an interview with you to actually get food stamps. And I told the woman on the phone how much I was making a week at this job I was working at. And she literally was just like, hell no, you need more money. And I was just like, okay, food stamps lady. Okay. (laughs) So that was like my big wake up call that I was like, you need to get paid more. When the food stamps lady's telling you that you're getting robbed, you need to get paid more. So uh, that situation reminds me of um, another artist who was doing World Warcraft bus, even recently. I think it was like as of two years ago, if not a, a year ago. Um, she was doing the bus for $100, and she was doing 10 hours of work per bust. And she had about four months of backlogged clients, but she was not having trouble making uh, ends meet. She was having trouble paying rent, mm-hmm. despite being immensely uh, skilled and able to hit like the World of Warcraft vibe and uh, mm-hmm. st- style. But evidently that fan base doesn't sufficiently pay. Yeah, no, they... I would say that comparatively, the D&D fan base is like, we want to pay you. I have actually had more D&D fans give me a tip double of what I was charging just because they liked my work that much, you know? And that was like, why is that making me emotional? It was just very much like one of those things where it was just like, yeah, no, I value your work. You should be charging more. And I was just like, yeah, you're right. I should. Also, your character was cool to draw. <laughs> um, I would say for me, I, I'm trying to think of like when this actually this transition happened for me. But I, I, oh, shoot, I do remember now. I was working. I, well, I know we want to talk about like how to like make commissions work and stuff like that like financially um with uh with everything but i was also working a full-time job at the same time because there was no way to make it work with commissions there was just no way not at the prices i was getting them at and i was lucky if i even got like four or five commissions a year really like i didn't have that many followers i maybe had like three thousand followers on on twitter um on that note i get I have never received a commission from Instagram. I've only ever received them from Twitter. If anyone's ever considering which platform to devote their time to. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, Steve's am... experience was similar where he got oh, like yeah. a handful of tops and you know that was with 70,000 followers on Instagram. So it's mm-hmm. not it. It's Twitter. I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about social media eventually here, but Twitter to me is never going to go away in that sense. Like Twitter is replacing what Tumblr was. Tumblr was a big, it was this ability to have like text and, 
and art and picture and video all in one thing. TikTok is great. And I think TikTok is kind of filling the void of what Instagram once was. And a lot of people have gone that direction. But the one thing about Twitter is like, it's the water cooler of so many industries. Like you have comics, you have gaming, you have animation, you have illustration, and they're all there together. And they're able to share the writers that you need to be friends with because that's who writes the stuff you get to draw. And um, they're there. Like, it's just, it's a, if you're looking for industry stuff, that's the direction to go, in my opinion. But um, who am I? <laughs> that's totally valid. I, I agree with you entirely. Yeah. yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I love the way that you put that to the water cooler of a lot of industries. Yeah. Mm -hmm. totally. Um. So the food stamps lady is like, listen, you got to figure this out. Um, so how long from there to like a, a, a raise in prices, what was that raise in prices? So from there, that was my, I had to come to terms with a lot of different stuff and it was, it was, a, I, I hit a really depressive swing after that of just being like, how do I do this? How do I make this thing that I love happen? You know? And, um, I kind of had to pick myself up from the ground after that because a, I was burnt out because I was working nonstop, barely making any money, unable to pay any of my bills. Like, and that kind of stress can really get to you eventually. And, um, so that's when I actually like got a job, um, at, uh, a logistics company <laughs> and then started negotiating pricing every day on the phone with truck drivers. <laughs> and that was an interesting event in my life, <laughs> but it made me better about negotiating pricing. It made me comfortable about negotiating money. Like if anyone's ever like seen like a floor of like at a logistics company where like it's like over the road trucking which is what i did and it's like the stock market it's a lot of people being like i've got 350 i've got 420 like you like you're just like constantly like people calling it out and then whoever gets the lowest bid essentially like wins the the ticket because like the company wants to make a profit and to me i was just constantly there just like man we are fleecing these truck drivers like this is horrible like how are they making any money doing this? Like I could get the trucking industry. Oh boy. You want to get into something. Trucking industry is a hot mess. <laughs> oh, <it's> so <laughs> it's replaced with robots anyway. So it's yeah. Yeah. Which is a shame. Cause there's a lot of really great hardworking people out there who are like, they are the hidden. It's the hidden industry that drives this entire country in a way that most people don't understand. Logistics runs the economy and it is a lot of, shady things can happen there and it's 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 fascinating <laughs> also it feels very it's like if you thought like the blizzard stuff that came out was bad that was just my work environment in the logistics company it was nasty it was really bad um but anyway besides the point logistics was there i was able to like get comfortable with with negotiating price and um i was also able to decline projects too um that's something I actually teach in my course, like which I teach my students a lot is that the greatest asset in negotiating price at any point is the ability to walk away from the negotiation. And if you've lost the ability to say no, you're going to get fleeced, like without a doubt. And the power is in the other person's hand. So if you have to actually make a living off of this, you have to have, especially in the beginning of your career, 
it's better to have a side job that's covering all of those necessary bills for you while you're starting out so that you can decline a hundred dollar portrait and you're not trying to make ends meet by doing like a 10 of them in a week and just to make rent that month, you know? Um, Cause we're not robots and artists can't produce like that. And you're going to get burnt out. Like there's no way to maintain that intense of a, of a work ethic, basically. Burnt out or blow out your wrist. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So um, was there a turning point where you're like, oh, okay, I can jump off of this, uh, this gig at the logistics company and then return to art? Um, and well, obviously there was a, a point where that happened. What was that point? And, and what, what were the like multiple revenue streams that you were using? Like if it wasn't just commissions, what other things did you line up in order to, you know, start doing art again, full time and not having to rely on an unrelated profession? Yeah. Um, so at that time, um, I was, I was, I was working, you know, my full, full week work, full work week. There we go. Um, and I was having to decline projects, projects I wanted to work on that I could have taken. And it got to a point where I was like, I need to make the jump. Like I need more time. Work is getting in the way of my other work and I need to make this jump now. And it was terrifying. Um, I eventually like, I tried to do it in a bit more of a diplomatic way and a little bit of an easier way of like trying to do, I tried to switch from full-time to part-time and like I said, this work environment was kind of nasty. And uh, my boss at the time basically said that he was never going to hire a woman again because they couldn't do the job. And then was like, you're going to fail in a week. What are you going to do about healthcare? And I was like, I don't know. I'll figure it out. And then I ended up just leaving in a week after that. I was just like, bro, not here, not today. Bye-bye. <laughs> like, you're not going to play this game with me, like, buddy. <laughs> um. But yeah, so at that time, I was selling prints, and prints were doing, like, I was maybe $100 a month at the time. Like, it wasn't really that much. Um, but I just knew, I was like, I have to make this jump. I had a little bit of a savings off to the side. Um, and those first, like, four months of me doing it was a mess. Like, it was just, like, trying this, trying that, and... um my parents had to help me out a little bit at the time. Cause it was just like, Hey, like, I just, I just need some fun mood, like some food for a money for food this week. Like, can you just like spot me like a couple hundred or something? And, um, like having, it was rough at that time. And then I was, this was also paired not to get personal, but this was also paired with, I had, um, three family deaths all within two weeks of each other just like bap, 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 bap. And it was hard because I was like, I'm going to go for the jump. And then it was like, your aunt died. Your cousin that was like a sister died. Your your uncle died. And it was just like, bap, bap, bap. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like just, just fell. <laughs> um, but anyone would like, you know, so, um, so yeah. And then I was just kind of at the time with my grief and everything, I had heard about critical role and, I had always wanted to get into it, but I was just kind of like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And I just sank all of my time into campaign two. Like I just straight up watched 
almost 40 hours. For, I'm sorry, 40, ep- no, no, 60 episodes at four hours each within three months. Like I was just like, I, I was like, my grief can go away. Wow. Look at these wonderful voice actors playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> and then just like fell into it, you know? Um, and I got into C2E2 and took this piece basically with me to critical to um, C2E2 and my life changed forever <laughs> after that moment. Um, but yeah. <laughs> what was the moment at C2E2 that changed your life specifically? C2E2 was the moment. C2E2 was like my debut to the critter fan base in a way. It was like a, um, I, I I had done a lot of conventions before this where I was like, hey, I made my table back. Yay. You know, and um, I, with C2E2 was the first time I'd ever made a substantial amount of profit. And I had actually sold out of all of my prints of the Mighty Nine within the first day. And I literally looked at my cousin who was helping me and it was like, three o'clock in the afternoon and i like called a print shop and was like i need more prints and like they're like we're closing in 30 minutes and i'm like go 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 get them for me and like it was really intense um and it was just like the amount of people like coming up to me and being like i want that print and it was like the first time i'd ever had somebody an entire fan base basically being like that's the print of the show i want that one particular like i had never had that happen to me um and then I got to, and then after the convention was done, Matt Mercer came up to my table and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and then I like, he came up, he came up from behind me and I was breaking down my table. And then I heard my voice, I heard my name from like behind me, turned around, saw him, ran away, <laughs> just straight up booked it. Like, was just like, no! And, like, ran away from him. Um, I went back. Like, I went back. I went back. And he's a lovely person. And um, and it was just kind of in that moment where I went, everything's different now. I don't know what happened, but my life is different now. <laughs> so how did that conversation go? I'm curious. I've honestly blacked out on most of it. <laughs> um... Yeah, no, it was just very chill and, you know, um, just talking about the con and, um, and, you know, just, I think, yeah, no, uh, it's, it's all kind of just like, and you're just like, you're real? (laughs) What? Oh, no. (laughs) But it wasn't a time where he then jumped out and said, hey, we like you to do some work for us. Yeah, no, um, that kind of happened later, um, in a way. It's just kind of been one of those things where, um, I've just been a part of a lot of Critical Role projects since then. And, and it was just, like, with the puzzle and everything, I don't really know how much I'm allowed to say about it, but it was, um, the, the, both teams that were, like, trying to get this puzzle made, which is, this one here um like both teams brought that piece of artwork to the table and said we should make a puzzle of this and it was definitely just like this moment where i was like oh wow oh okay and um yeah and from there just like people 
at the time, like this was just like a period of time from like, like C2E2 happened in, in 2020 and then the world ended. <laughs> and it was just like the amount of people, the print sales I made from C2E2 is actually what let me like live throughout the pandemic until I was able to actually go back to um, teaching in the fall. Like without, that's what I'm saying, like C2E2 for me that year saved my career in a way that like I was already getting hit by a tsunami wave of grief from everything that had happened. And then the world just shut down. And like, luckily I had this, this nest egg of print sales that I had made. I think at that convention I had made like $7,000. So it was enough for me to be like, okay, I can budget this and like live for a couple months what's going on why is the world going like this you know like that kind of um while we're on that note of print sales and how well you did selling those prints obviously it's a thing um people are selling prints of their art of uh pre-existing intellectual property but i i've also encountered some hesitation in that regard or some people that are maybe unclear on what the legal concepts are in that um can you talk about that for a little bit in terms of what your understanding is as far as like what's outside the safety zone and what's inside so definitely outside of the safety zone is touching anything owned by disney disney will find you it doesn't matter if you're in the woods they will find you and he'll be like oh money and then you're like oh shit mickey what are you doing here <laughs> like um so <laughs> um so yeah so anything disney related don't even touch it with a 10-foot pole um i actually had a friend of mine that did a picture of a monkey on poppies like a like poppy like the flower she had a like a dmca takedown re request from disney because they were like that's Wizard of the Oz. That's Wizard of the Wizard of the Oz. Oh my God, Wizard of Oz. Thank you, Wizard of Oz. Um, you can't do that. That's our IP. And it was like it had nothing. It was literally just a monkey on a poppy field. And it was like cool. That's, that's how confusing. intense you are. Yeah. No, they're intense. So again, I wouldn't do anything Disney related. It depends Disney, on. E sorry, what? Oh, sorry to interrupt you, but Disney owns so much, and even mm -hmm. in a situation like that where it's not even Disney related, like that seems like it's going to be hard to avoid. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where I don't really know how Marvel is anymore. Um, I mean, like, you can do it, but there's also so many different iterations. So if you're doing, like, if you're doing MCU Spider-Man, that might be where the issue comes into play. But if you're doing, like, I don't know, Ultimate Spider-Man outfits or something like that, you might be kind of be able to find that kind of leeway. You also don't necessarily have a lot of people like going down the aisles being like, oh, take that down. Oh. Like, you know, it's not, it's a little black markety <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, it's a great um, market. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think the issue is when you post stuff online and you have uh, the title of something as this, as Spider Man, that's when you start running into issues with it being able to be searched and with, um, people being able to find it and then be like, you need to take this down, like that kind of thing. Well, not um, even people, bots. Yeah, bots. Yeah. 
Also, never, ever, ever, ever post I want this on a shirt under anyone's art on Twitter. That is how people, that is how bots steal artwork and put it on shirts. So even though you want that design on a shirt, don't say it. <laughs> DM it, right? Yeah, or be like, I would love this on a piece of cloth of which could be draped upon my body. <laughs> Can you clarify that a, a little bit? Because we're maybe all of us are in the inside no outside that might that might be unclear because there's like this chinese connection that's happening there like what what are we what are we talking about exactly yeah so basically there's a lot of bots out there like there's these like um these these knockoff shops that essentially just like take the artwork and they will um they'll basically make like a print to print to order thing for shirts and Basically, their attempt is to try and, like, if you are selling it as a shirt or you're selling this design, their attempt is to be like, oh, they like that artwork. Hey, try and buy it from us first. They're basically just trying to get a couple like a couple little hits off of certain things. Um, so, yeah. So, if you actually comment the words, I want this on a shirt, the bots are, like, constantly, like, skimming for that on Twitter and probably on Facebook as well um, and Instagram. Um, that's actually how I found a lot of my artwork on um on these sites basically um and uh that's not supporting the artist like it's literally being stolen and being printed onto clothing without their consent um and uh yeah there was something else i wanted to say with that and i forget oh this is also how they tried to like get the whole disney like they were literally like putting actual copyright disney stuff and people were saying i want this on a shirt i want this on a shirt i want this on a shirt to try and actually get the bots to put copyrighted disney content on shirts so that disney would find the companies and shut them down <laughs> which just you know galaxy brain moment <laughs> i like that that's clever oh yeah 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 it's like that it's like the meme of like let them fight <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally um, so that gray area, um, when it comes to things like critical role, where now you're in like Dungeons and Dragons area, which now you're in Wizards of the Coast, now you're in Hasbro, where that's a, that's a pretty wide margin of error. How do you navigate that without stepping on toes? So I will say that specifically with, um, with uh, like different IPs, they also de- they also vary on each one. Like there was a whole thing with Blizzard too, because again, I was really into WoW at the time, um, where they basically said, if you make fan art of our work, we own your art, basically. And it was like, oh, okay. Like they basically said, if you make fan art of our IP, we have the right to use it anywhere we want, which is kind of scummy. Uh, Should have been a warning sign. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so it depends on each IP. With Critical Role specifically, they're in this kind of weird gray area because there's no there's no true official design of each of the characters. Like, yeah, you have like their characters and stuff like that, but no one's ever really copying that to the T. A lot of the people that are out there are making their own designs, like their own vision of Critical Role characters. Um, and... Uh, so you kind of run into that situation there. Uh, with client work, it really depends on each thing. So with Critical Role specifically, um, and with the puzzle and stuff like that, it's a licensing contract where they have the rights to print it on a puzzle, but they have no other right to any other things of the design. So 
I would also argue that that's a huge thing for um, passive income for things that you really want, if you have the opportunity to actually license out your work for different things and to be making passive income on pieces so that you're not constantly having to create a new piece for more money. And you can have a piece where you're like, hey, here's a limited edition print of this design. Only 100 are going to be made, but it's different. And that way you're actually able to get more money out of each piece and actually be able to live. Because truthfully, if you're just doing client work, you're kind of under the poverty line, kind of. Like the unfortunate thing to tell a lot of younger people in the industry is most of these jobs do not pay well. Covers for comic books are trash money. Like $200, $300. Like that's not a livable wage. Like, and comics and the illustration department industries really need to raise their prices. Um, it's extremely unfair that that's what they're they're still charging what was acceptable in the 80s <laughs> and you're like hey it's 2020 inflation happened multiple times uh we sh you should really raise your prices which leads a lot of artists to have to like um rely on fandom to pay their bills and um that's a shame <laughs> nope. i mean it's not a shame but you know you have to have so many revenue streams to make it work um I went off topic. I don't even remember what the original question was. No, it's fine. But you did bring up a, a topic I do want to touch on real quick because it's something that we don't get uh, to talk about very much. And that's licensing. Mm. Um, so I, I'm part of a group of a bunch of other fantasy artists. And whenever someone is offered to, uh, the opportunity to license out the work, they're like, well, how much do I charge them? How do I, without making them run away, what's appropriate? And sometimes the, oh, the answer is like $200. And I'm thinking that... Mm -mm. To, that doesn't seem like it's going to be enough, right? Yeah, with licensing, there's different types of ways of doing it, right? Um, and this actually also goes into children's book illustration and just like cover illustrations for, for publishing as well, where you're essentially like, you're, you're, you're getting royalties for each time it's used, right? And what you'll do is maybe you do a $200 advance on royalties and then once that $200 is surpassed in royalties per piece, then you get another, another check, another check, another check. And that way you can make more. Giving complete buyout for licensing is a huge mistake because it's just, you know, that you basically go, hey, oh, you want to use that on a t-shirt? Well, you're going to make, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on that t-shirt. Give me 200 bucks. And you're like, no, you should be getting a cut of each of the t-shirt. Like, um, so there's a lot of that that happens a lot of if you don't think a project is going to do well you can ask for a higher advance on royalties um and then most likely you're probably not going to ever get royalties again from the that piece or you can be like hey i think this is going to do well i'll do this much for advance on royalties and then x amount per unit per run or whatever um and that kind of makes it so it's a it's a passive income and then you get like a $200 check once a month or something like that, like, which helps, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I, I wanted to ask, um, about that idea of there being a specific, um, design, like in turn, in the case of critical role, there isn't a specific, uh, official character design for any of the characters in that. But then let's say, you know, you, you, do you do a painting of one of the characters fighting a beholder or a mind flayer of which there is a very specific IP 
uh, a, a specific character design that does fall into you know a legal IP zone. Where are you at there? That one is a gray area that I'm not too sure. That, that that's one I've like I've been you know like hey I'm doing this thing. Hope no one notices. Maybe it's a problem. Not sure. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> like, like that kind of thing. Um, but I will say specifically with a lot of fantasy illustration things they often give you the rights to actually get prints of your work made in the contract. And this is why, this is why Lauren's contract corner is make sure that you always have a contract with every piece that you make. And I don't care if it's your uncle who's trying to make a new children's book, get a contract signed. <laughs> like, um, and yeah, it really depends on each client and what their contracts are like. Some are much more stringent about like, Hey, you did work for us. You can't sell this work. Like you can't make prints of this work. We own full buyout rights of this work. Um, and most of the time you're like, okay, you paid me. That's great. Um, but there's other companies. And I mean, like, I don't want to like, I don't know if talking about contracts tied directly to names here is something I'm allowed to do. So I'm not going to say it, but um, a lot of the times you are given the right to be able to sell prints of your work. Um and um, you have to double check for that. And if you can, um, actually ask if that's a possibility in your contract. Um, contracts don't have to be set in stone and you can actually negotiate them and be like, hey, I'd prefer that I'm credited like this. I prefer to have the right to make print sales. And normally people are, you know, accommodating to that. Um, but uh, yeah. If that answers that question. It does. It's <laughs> it's much more emphatic advice than I've given in the past where I'm like, uh, well, if you've got an email chain, you're probably okay. But you're like, no, Ooh. have like a fucking real piece of paper in front of you. What resources mm -hmm. would you recommend for people uh, learning how one, how to write a contract or get some templates? Like what do people do there? Yeah. So one great resource, uh, there was this amazing convention in Philadelphia it was called Artisticon and it was, it was only around for like two seasons and then COVID hit. Um, and they actually had a lot of like, like um, contract lawyers and stuff like that come and talk to you about your contracts and stuff like that. And it was really great. Um, one resource that I think is just like gold standard really um, is drawn and drafted um, by Lauren Pampanelli. I think her last name is uh, she has green hair you probably know her from Twitter. Oh, that green-haired lady. Yeah, yeah. Green-haired Lauren. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I could probably like give uh, some links for the um, for the show notes and stuff like that. Uh, but you can look up drawnanddrafted.com. Um, they have a lot of really great resources on like what certain terminology things mean in a contract, and um, you know how to write one and like how to have things done they also have some templates that you can use um a really great resource let me get my button on is the ethical handbook to have this because there's so many contracts in here go get one i mean i've had this one for almost 10 years now and it's never done me wrong so That's the graphic design guild yeah, the Graphic Design Guild Handbook, Pricing, Ethical Guidelines. It's a very weird state. Yeah. Uh, they also have different pricing things in there. They have different types of contracts to use. I have a catch-all contract that I use for a lot of my stuff. Um, and it's really kind of more in my favor most of the time. Um, 
And sometimes, most of the time when you're working with a big client, they have their own contract that they want you to sign, which by all means, please, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I highly recommend that. Um, I think you can actually get PDFs now of it, I think, instead of the actual Wouldn't shock book. me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I would do that, drawn and drafted. Those are really great resources to have. Um, and uh, really, the contract is there to protect you. An email chain is always great and everything, um, but actually having a legal document that says, here's a late fee, here's a cancellation fee, here's how much you're going to owe me if you are this late on your late payment, like that kind of stuff that you can actually take to court if you had to and be like, they signed this contract, they agreed to this. And, you know, it's not just an email chain where it's like, well, I didn't fully understand. And it's like, okay. But the contract, I tell them to read it fully. Please fully understand this. And yeah, it makes it a lot easier and you're a lot more protected. I would say specifically, like, it was actually my experience in logistics and doing that kind of stuff constantly that made me be this paranoid about having an email chain and having a contract at all times. Because I watched too many truck drivers get completely run over. Um by big name lawyers because they're like, well, they didn't sign the contract, you know? And like, yeah, you had an email chain, but you didn't have the contract. And it's just like, mm, sorry, I'll play again. And it was really horrible. And I was like, you know what? No, I have my contract. Let's try and play this game, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so the takeaway is uh, one, have a contract, contract signed, obviously, but also um, there's like many different social media platforms that people are on and they tend to just do these conversations in their DMs. So generally, I suggest sending everybody you get from whatever platform to your email. So you don't have to wonder, did I find this person on uh, Reddit or Instagram or whatever? And then have to find, search through those uh, threads, which are not searchable in most cases. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Get them over to your email. Um, have the contract signed and the contract should be signed before you even put your pen to pencil or, or your pen, your pen, pen, pen to paper. Um, and that way everything is very clear about like what advances are, you know, should be, ha should be had. Um, and that way too, it also establishes this kind of like professional atmosphere and this professional attitude where a lot of the times, if you're having stuff in DMS, it can be very informal. Um, and having it in email automatically shifts it over to no, 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 I am the professional in this space. And, um, very often if you can lose that you can lose that that energy when it's just a like verbal deal right um and and you can also lose that a lot with like family and friends which is why i also recommend not doing stuff for family and friends because it can get especially in the beginning you can get a lot of people who are just like well just do this thing and you're like yeah but like i i can't just do this thing right like I need to be compensated for this. Like, love ya, but like, this is a business I'm trying to run, you know? Um, one great tip that I liked a lot from somebody was that if you, if you're starting out and that client is just not budging on the price, but you want to maintain that, that client relationship is to have a first time client fee discount where you're like, yeah, 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 that's what you got for that one. But now like in the future, the next project will be a different price. Like just so you're aware of that. Um, and, and communicating that and being over the top, 
clear about every single step that's going through. Because a lot of the people that you're doing commissions with, with this kind of stuff, they've never done this before. They don't know what this experience is like. Um, if you're working with a big client, they have this down to a T and they're like, get this over to invoicing, get this over to like accounts receivable, get this over to this person. And you're just like, cool, 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 cool. You know? Um, but it's really the time I've had to really have to implement a contract to that degree is usually for the lower to mid range client. That's usually that kind of like, we don't really know what this is like yet. And like that kind of vibe. Um, but yeah. So going back to, you know, the C2, C2, E2, you said it was right. And having all of those prints and, uh, you know, that kind of really sort of established you as this, uh, you know, go to fandom artist. Um, was it just critical? I guess so. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, you were doing a lot of like D and D type stuff and critical role fan art stuff. And, uh, what were there other fandoms that you were finding some audiences in as well, or was it mainly just, just that? Um, actually a good question. Um, there's always been a really big push from the D and D community, um, for me. Um, but I, I think the big thing for me is, um, I'm a huge, I'm a huge nerd for buff women. <laughs> And that kind of has, yeah, right? Yeah. Give Cora, me more muscles right? on my Wonder Woman, dang it. <laughs> um, that, that's Steven the Cora Universe did, right? style. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, love my both ladies. What can I say? You know? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no. So for me, I, I think fandom for me has always gone through my lens. Um, which is always a big thing with fan art because fan art can fan art's like kind of like almost like playing this like stock market kind of thing where a fandom can just just die out. And if you did this all this work for it, or maybe you became known as the World of Warcraft artist, and then everyone's like, Hey, we're not really into this game anymore. Bye. You've kind of like lost all of this like capital that this social media cap that's a really horrible way of describing it. That's but, true. Yeah, it's it's because then everyone's like, no, we're not really into that anymore. I mean, you're a great artist, but eh. And you're like, oh, okay, bye. <laughs> like, Game um, of Thrones doesn't resonate with people anymore because of how it ended. Oh, don't, mm, don't even get me started. Don't even get me started. I have my book over here, okay? Don't get me started. Don't get me um, started. There's Um. Anyway. <laughs> it's not the real ending. It's fine. We, yeah, no, 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 no. No, no, nothing counts after season six, right? Yeah, none of it counts. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think playing uh, certain fandoms kind of rise and rise and fall. I think a big one that would be uh, a good example right now would be Hades. How if you had done Hades artwork in the beginning of the pandemic, you're talking 30,000, 40,000 likes per piece. You do that now, you maybe get 5,000 likes per piece. So it's like... The game is still wonderful, um, and the art of the art in Hades is like honestly like my ooh mm, fa fantastic fantastic work. Um, but just people get tired of certain things, right? Um, 
I was going down this route for a certain thing, and I don't even remember what happened. Please help me. Well, I was wondering, uh, you know, what other fandoms you liked to participate in, or were were there other fandoms that you were a part of that also uh, contributed to like income for you and stuff? Yeah, I so specifically, okay, now I know where I was going. Now, besides that point, Um, for me, it is fandoms that involve strong women for me. So it is a lot of that. It's a lot of kind of like taking any fandom that I'm interested in and actually putting it through that lens. Um, especially like coming, being a nerd, a female nerd or a female identifying nerd at the time, like being in that in like the 90s, the early 2000s was not exactly a comfortable space to be in. And a lot of the female characters that they were like, here's a female character for you. And you were like, where's the substance? Where's anything? She's got boobs. She's got a butt. Where's anything else going on here? You know? And um, that was actually always a big thing for me with any of my fan art was to be like strong woman will kick your ass. And you also want her to step on you. Like, like that kind of energy. <laughs> um, and uh and that's just, I guess it's also kind of like in right now, you know, Lady lady D, like, like that kind of thing. Um, but it's just, it's always been the fandom through that lens for me. Um, so if it, again, like with Korra, like I always really identified with her. Like I liked her struggle. Like I loved Aang. I love, I love the last Airbender and everything like that. But there was just something about Korra where like her struggle and that whole thing was just like, I identify with this. Like yeah no i get you like it's hard to be the avatar isn't it like you know um but uh but yeah i always kind of had the fandom through that kind of lens so i wouldn't say that it's been any necessarily like one particular fandom outside of critical role specifically that has always kind of pushed me forward i've just kind of become known as the lady who draws the buff women and it's a great place to be you know um but yeah and throughout this kind of this period, um, have you always pushed the open for commissions thing? Or was there a point where you're like, okay, I don't have to actively pursue commissions. They're just all coming to me now. Commissions. I, I never really pushed them. Um, maybe like once or twice, I'd be like, I have two commission slots. And normally that was around, like, I think that was around when I had 5,000 followers and even then didn't really get that many hits from people, you know? Um, but then again, a lot of those people were World of Warcraft people and Warcraft wasn't doing well anymore. So, you know, who knows if those numbers would have been different. Um, now it's just gotten to a point where being so closely tied with critical role and being, you know, the lead illustrator for Taldor Reborn and which that just, I, I, I did that project and I was like busting my butt. And then they were like, Hey, you're the lead illustrator. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what? Like, you know, like that was very much a, like, I didn't realize how big of a deal this project was now. Oh no. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So um commissions have just kind of always been a background thing for me um and it's kind of gotten to a point now where it's like i i can't i can't do i can't really do commissions anymore because it's like 
after C2E2, I opened up my commission slots for a brief period and they filled up within like a half hour. And I was like, oh no, like what happened? This is different. And that's like that transition in February, 2020 was a complete and utter switch that flipped. And I was nobody (laughs) before that period. And it's been a hard thing to accept and change very quick. It's only been a year and a half of that of this, and it's been a lot to handle. <laughs> and, um, but uh, but yeah, so at this point, what I've been doing, or I, I did recently, is I actually did uh, an auction for a commission. And that, again, kind of blew me away by like how much people were willing to pay. And I was just kind of like, in tears receiving bids and i was like they want how much for a portrait like it was just really intense (laughs) um this was public though would you mind saying like what the numbers were yeah yeah so the winning bid was a thousand dollars for uh for a commission and i was just like oh okay you know (laughs) um so uh yeah it was it was really intense to like kind of like go through that um and um, it's also why I want prints out there because I've gotten to a point now where people, not everyone can afford a commission from me now. And that's something I have to come to terms with. And I am very much the type of person where I remember seeing an artist and being like, I want work from them. I want I want artwork from them. Like I love their work and not being able to afford anything that they could give, you know, like that they provided, like even their prints were too expensive for me to handle. And it's always kind of been a major thing for me to like have that price range available for people who want my work. Cause I just don't think it's fair to like, be like, Oh, all prints are $50 now, you know? And it's like, no, like, like let's have some mid range stuff for like that student that is in high school. And they're like, they really like my work. And I'm like, Hey, I want you to have my work, you know? And, um, yeah, it's a, it's got to kind of have like all these different price ranges for those that like have the disposable income to, paint ask me to paint a portrait at that cost which just like i don't have that disposable income what kind of job do you have you know? tech um yeah yeah right and i'm like okay cool i'll draw your character um but yeah so that's kind of like the what, what it is now um but commissions were always just kind of like a i understand why people want to do commissions because it does make you feel like it makes you feel like you're actually doing something that feels professional, right? Like someone's asking you to draw work for them. Um, but sometimes in the in those early stages, they were just not worth it. Like I love drawing those characters, but like, man, like you're putting in like 40 hours, maybe even more, and you're getting paid $50. Like that's not even minimum wage. Like no one can live off that. And that's why that whole thing of like raise your prices when you're like online is like, you know, it's not necessarily like a a gatekeeping of of commissions, but rather like I want you to get paid. I I don't want you to go through the pain I did. I don't want you to have food stamps lady telling you that you need to be getting paid more. And I don't want you to go through that pain and that depression and that feeling of like my art, my art is not worth anything. No one wants to pay from pay me for this work. And that's that's a huge soft spot for me of just being like get paid get paid <laughs> like you know um but yeah <laughs> there's so that it, one uh, um uh 
thread on Reddit that sorry not thread on Reddit uh, thread on Twitter that I had go viral had like a two million views I think at this point and the thread was all about raise your rates basically and this is what you can do to do that um, and the responses was largely positive like oh I should do this but it was also a lot of I can't do this and the problem when you're doing a broadcast like that is to some people yes they cannot raise their rates they're not able to charge their dollars an hour because they are you know, in middle school and they're just doodling and that's totally fine. Doodling is great. Everybody should love to doodle. Um, and then there's people that were, you know, getting work for Paizo or something. So they're professional level artists and they're afraid that they can't charge more than $150 per character. Cause that's all that Paizo pays. I, I, I like what you said too, about uh, gatekeeping and, you know, kind of getting priced out of commissions, but still having, material and content available for people because one of the objections that you hear a lot is like well if they if they raise their prices then uh you know i won't be able to afford it you know this is like a consumer talking about an artist it's like well they don't tell them to raise their prices because then i can't afford it and it's like well buy a print so that makes me curious you know as far as like when you before this kind of blew up um and commissions weren't really like a thing you were pushing really hard what was like the main the main pillar for your income, it was prints. That would definitely, um, hmm, to be honest, it was nothing because I was, I got to that point where with commissions and everything, I went, this isn't working. This is not working. And um, I just decided I'm going to work on my portfolio hundred percent. I'm going to focus and zone in on all of my problems I have and um, I don't draw the full figure, but I'm going to draw the full figure then. Um, I don't, you know, I actually had one, um, one person that I actually submitted my portfolio to. And this was at the time when I was doing like Instagram girl stuff, basically. And um, she basically said, she was like, hey, your work is amazing. You render amazingly. However, I need stuff that shows that you can do backgrounds. I need stuff that shows that you can do all this other stuff. And that was a huge blow to me because I was like feeling my oats. I was like, wow, look at me. I have so many followers. And I was like, hey, I'll do work for you. And then she was like, yeah, no. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know? um, but it was a good it was a good moment. It was a good moment to get that rejection because I went, you know what, Lauren? She's right. Like, you don't have any of the stuff that they need. And you got to work on this stuff. So. I just went ham on my portfolio and just started doing as much as I could to actually like show I could do what I said I could do. And that's kind of when that transition happened. And I was doing the full-time work at the logistics company too. Um, but after that is when it went all full print sales. So it's kind of, I would love to say it was like commissions and then prints. Um, but it was really after again, that C2E2 moment. And then it was just print sales, you know? Um, but yeah. Um, I thought you were going to say uh, floating heads because of the um, the podcast that you were on prior to uh, the pandemic. I'm sorry, I forgot the uh, the, the host's name, but um, you, it was the outdoor interview with you, that you had done yes. prior. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, no, it was floating heads. Yep. So <laughs> yeah. while you were talking, I was like doing, aha, I know what she was going to say next, yeah. the floating heads. And the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 yeah, no, 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 no. It was all floating heads. Absolutely. Absolutely. There were no neck. It was just a neck. And then you were like, here's a face. And the algorithm was like, wow. And I was like, Cool. Thanks for the likes. <laughs> and uh, real quick, uh, you were talking about uh, making sure that um, everybody can afford you, uh, regardless of what budget they have. Uh, I think the important 
thing to point out is scope to budget. Scope meaning like how much work you do to them. Like if someone only has $50, you can spend maybe an hour doing a sketch for them and they'll love it, right? You don't have to do yep. your best work for every single person that hires you for every budget that they hire you at. Which honestly, I need to save that statement for myself because I'm extremely hard on myself and I give my 110% every time, which is always a problem. <laughs> yeah, me, me no, I'm, but I'm right there with you. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard to stop yourself. Like too many times I've been like, oh, here's a sketch commission. And then you're like, Lauren, sketch is done. Yeah, but what if I render it more? But what if I render it a little bit more? But what, uh-oh, the perspective's off. Well, I got to fix the perspective, don't I? Like, you know, and then hours go by and you're like, damn it, happened again. <laughs> you know? That's the thing, like uh, a piece is never finished. It's only abandoned. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think for me, I can't really offer commissions Unless it's at a convention, um, which even conventions that that ooh, my anxiety of doing convention commissions is just like astronomical because I'm just like, <laughs> you know, I just and then I can't get my head in the game after that. And then if I lose myself in that kind of panic and that imposter syndrome space, it's just like I'm gone. You know, I'm like, hey, I'll see you next week. I'm going to go lie down for a month. You know? <laughs> well, could you resort to your comfort zone of drawing floating heads in that case? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> can't even draw floating heads anymore. Everyone has to have big biceps. Can't do it. <laughs> just draw a bicep next to their head. And like, yeah, it's just a big bicep. <laughs> draw their head as a bicep. Oh, next level. <laughs> I give that one to you for free. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so the, the common thinking um, is that it, it can be hard to shake yourself uh, out of fandom popularity like if you kind of establish establish yourself as a fan artist and you know a, a large percentage of your following is based off of that and then you switch out and you want to start doing something else um that can be problematic like it you can lose a lot in that type of transition um you had a slightly different experience um you you managed to leverage that fan art base into a new area what was that career change that you were what was the career change that you were aiming for and what was that process like yeah i think um for me i i didn't really have a plan um a lot of my career has been very fluid like it's been i i went into this first as doing like comic book covers and i did covers for idw and and dynamite and um they were my first repeat clients that i had and i love comics like don't get me wrong but like fantasy illustration is and always has been my absolute god so um <laughs> um uh yeah so like i i kind of the way i kind of oh, i have i can't i have to push the top to do this but the way i was like trying to do this was like in my mind was go parallel to the thing i wanted and at a certain point where I saw an opportunity, jump over into the other lane and jump over into fantasy illustration, start getting my work in front of people, um, getting my work in front of, um, you know, art directors who are, you know, part of people like Hit Point Press and like, uh, like what, uh, Ghostfire Gaming and stuff like that. Like get your stuff in front of those people. Um, but at the same time, having the portfolio work that shows I don't just do covers. I don't just do portrait 
like layout. I can do landscape layout, like, and having that content ready. Um, because like a thing, I think a lot of young artists maybe don't understand is there are going to be a ton of opportunities. That one opportunity that you think you have is not the only opportunity that's going to come. And there's going to be more instances where like, Hey, maybe, maybe you did see, uh, an art director at a convention um, and you didn't have the work you needed, that's fine. Like follow them on Twitter. Maybe they'll put out a call for artists at some point in the next year. Um, but don't lament the lost opportunity and actually continue to work on the portfolio work that's needed for the job that you want. And also make sure you make artwork of the job you actually want. Because if you just submit all chickens, you're gonna become the chicken lady and that's all you're gonna do. <laughs> Now we're getting to a kids in the hall sketch. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, my, my career has been very fluid in that sense. Um, I'm very, if an opportunity comes, I often try to go for it. And, um, and yeah, that's really, that's really the best way to answer that. So uh, in your example of going for an, seeking an opportunity, like after uh, Matt Mercer jumped behind you and uh, he didn't necessarily jump behind me. Yeah. Ooga booga, uh, Matt Mercer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he was just standing there. <laughs> I was just being dramatic, but yeah. No, yeah. I was tired. I... <laughs> but um, in the event that somebody else finds himself in a similar situation where out of the blue, Matt Mercer comes and talks to them, how would you, or let's say it's somebody from uh, D&D or uh, like official D&D or some other uh maybe Susan Hillmay from Ghostfire Games or someone just comes out of the blue, reaches out and uh, has contact with them. How do you follow up with that in a professional way to actually uh, continue that relationship as opposed to just having it be a one-off and then, oh, that would have been nice to have uh, had a, uh, an ongoing thing with them, but instead I panicked. Um, well, actually, funny enough, Suzanne's the one who actually gave me that hard letdown. Funny enough. Yeah, that was, and I was just like, she's right. <laughs> Um, yeah, I would say don't overthink it and actually treat it like you're actually just like talking to somebody and you're like getting lunch or you're, you're just talk to them like a human being. Right. Um, it, don't treat it like this is the only time you're ever going to see them. Right. It, Cause it maybe, it maybe won't be, you know, and, um, like it's hard cause those situations are really, really intense and like, if you, your anxiety gets the best of you and then you just like, and you just kind of like freeze up, another opportunity will come, right? Um, and I would say like the biggest thing for a lot of like talking to these types of people is like, they're human. They're basic people who have to get groceries themselves, you know, like it, it, don't put people, don't put these people on a pedestal, right? Like I had a huge I had a huge, um, I can't name the person, um, but uh, I was family friends with somebody who had a huge IP um, in the 80s. And I got to know him and watch people around him fawn over him and treat him like, it's so-and-so from Thing. Like, and, and knowing him first as neighbor and watching this happen was really odd because it was just like, he literally would be like, Hey, give me a second. I have to go talk to these people. And it was often a, like, not a performative thing. Cause he liked talking to them, but it was definitely a, like, 
creator fan moment and trying to bridge that creator fan moment is really hard. And really the only way to do that is to just be chill and like, be like, Hey, like your work, you know? And, um, and that's a hard thing to ask for big fans of work, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, no, treat people like they're people. Cause they are, they're no different than you. You know, they have their own weaknesses, their own hardships, and you don't have to put them on a God pedestal because you know, they're, the creator of the thing that you love, you know? Um, and I hope people treat me the same way. You know, I've had that a couple times where I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm just a basic bitch. Come on, talk to me. Talk to me. I'm normal. <laughs> you know? So did you uh, reach out afterwards as emails in an email and saying, Hey, it was great to meet you. Or what was the uh, second step there? Oh uh, yeah, no, I mean like I, I kind of, I actually do that as a practice in general, to be honest, especially at conventions where talking to people, um, and uh like getting cards from people and then just kind of reaching out and being like hey it was really great to meet you i hope we can work on a project in the future um you know really great had a really great time talking to you um and i, I mean that kind of comes from my dad being in sales <laughs> and it's just it's just one of those things that kind of got like ingrained in me of just kind of reaching out to someone and like being like hey it was great to meet you cool thanks bye <laughs> just <laughs> making that second contact you know but yeah, and, and, but doing it in a way that's not, um, too much, you know, like I get a lot of DMS a lot of the times from people I don't know being very familiar with me and it's not, there is a weird thing there. It's a parasocial relationship. I have no idea who you are and you're talking to me in a way that is like, we've never spoke and you're treating me like I can come to you with a problem and talk to you. Like it can be an open conversation. I'm like, I have no idea who you are, you know? And that's not a, that's not like, Ooh, I have no idea who you are anymore. I mean, God, like that's, that's not it. It's more of just like, who are you? <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah. So just like respecting certain boundaries, unless that person's actually given you their email or follows you or gives that entry into that space, don't go searching for it. Cause that is the first way to literally be like, and block, you know? So it's a very delicate process of like contacting people like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure in their mind that, you know, they see you on social media. They, they see your tweets all the time. So they feel like they know you. you tweet so, a lot. <laughs> so it kind of, I, <laughs> I didn't mean it that way, but yeah. No, 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 but I do. I'm just, I'm just saying. Fair, fair, fair. Um, you know, so they get this kind of, they get this sense of you as a person and that they relate to you on some level. And then it kind of like slips their mind that you haven't actually had like a real interpersonal reaction until this DM, you know? So I guess it's, uh, I, I, I don't know, uh, to my own horn, it's a piece of advice I always like to give out. It's like always pretend like you're in real life. You know, so mm -hmm. even, you know, if you're just seeing this person for the first time or talking to them for the first time, pretend they're a TV character because that's kind of like what it's been. They see you in this life. It's pseudo reality, but it isn't necessarily like conform to anything, you know. Uh, you or know. treat them like you're meeting them in the in line for coffee. Right. You know, because that's really what's happening. Like we're both in a certain space that's like a social space. But you may know who I am, but, you know, 
also don't be too predatory about it. You know, like don't be, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's that parasocial relationship of, of, I think a lot of influencers run into that now. And I think that that's kind of becoming more of a known thing. Um, hopefully people are kind of more aware of that. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it's also one of those things that I'm currently running into now where me being vulnerable online is coming with a bigger cost to myself of people making comments and, and, you know, um, specifically it was a recently a recent thing where I was talking about like my weight gain over, over the, over the pandemic. And it got into this whole thing of like two camps of one being like, Oh, it's just a self-control issue. You know, it's just a whatever thing. And then the other camp basically being like, you're being fat phobic for wanting to lose weight. And both comments were extremely triggering in a way I can't even describe to people where I basically was just like, I literally was like in my car and I was seeing these comments and I just was like, I froze. Like, I was just like, oh, okay. And, and I was able like, yeah, cause I'm in therapy, but I'm able to like process that and like, be like, okay, I'm being triggered because of X and this is why this is. But also like, I can't be as vulnerable as I used to be. There's this transition that happens around like 20,000 followers where people kind of stop looking at you like a human and they kind of start treating you more of like this. I I don't, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. It's, it's a weird transition to happen and, and, and it's all very new to me. And I have always kind of been the person who kind of wants, I mean, despite being very outgoing, I don't necessarily want the attention on me (laughs) and, um, and to kind of like be going through this and to be thrusted at that level is just like, has been a ride and it's been a hard thing to process with everything. Um, but yeah, being vulnerable online and trying to make that connection with fans is kind of coming at a cost. And it is, it is one of those things that like, I, I want to be vulnerable with my fans which is even a weird sentence to say to me, but at the same time, it, I can't do it anymore. Cause now you retweet that because it resonates with you. And then some, you know, Joe, 1,555.6 comes along and then has his input and all it's just like, you know, then my day is just like completely ruined. And it's hard to explain that to people who don't really kind of go through that too often. And then you kind of come off as this kind of like, oh, I don't know, someone retweeted my thing. And then now all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm sad because someone commented on my thing. And then you have somebody else who's like, I don't get comments on anything. Fuck you. You know, like, and then you get into that territory. <laughs> and it's just, it's nasty sometimes. It's taken me about 30 years to learn that there's a lot of people on the internet who you should just ignore. And they're just garbage people. And they're out there to make you feel bad. And there's nothing you can mm-hmm. do about it except for ignore them. Or maybe troll them back, but you know, you have to be a small enough account to get away with that. Yeah. And there has, there is a, there, I mean, I don't know if we're going off on this tangent, but there is a sense of punching down where I personally morale in my own morals refuse to troll back on these people because I know that if I say, you know, fuck you, you're making me feel bad. There's 34,000 people behind me that might dogpile that person. And I don't want that. I don't want to affect that person with that because that's a nightmare, you know? And I don't want that. And I've seen that happen to so many different fandoms and different artists where they just like 
they get an army of people just being like at that person. And it's not a fun time. <laughs> it's hard being morally conscious on the internet. No, <laughs> but yeah. Well, you used a good word in there. You know, it, the, the, the key word is, is fan. We've been talking about fandoms and now, now you have your own little mini, <laughs> mini universe of, of fans, as opposed to a community. You know, you talked about that 20,000, uh, follower threshold, threshold. Yeah. and that's sort of mm-hmm. like when you transition out of a community into a fandom like now you have fans and that can be like yeah. i'm sure that could be like super surreal and people like aspire to that and look up to it and that that's fine you know like get yours while you can but just be conscientious of all of these things that all of the baggage that is going to come along with it and uh you know get a therapist as soon as you can afford it hopefully oh absolutely oh 100 oh there's no way you could do this job with with social media the way it is now there's no way you can do this without a therapist because if you do get to that point where you're like at my level get ready <laughs> like like i keep telling my family that i'm preparing for death threats eventually like that's my mentality is i've seen too many i've had too many friends who have gone through this and um, or rather like we all kind of found each other with like larger accounts, just kind of like getting into DMS and like talking and stuff. And to me, I'm really dreading the 50,000 mark because that's where people are like, yeah, that's when the death threats come. And I'm like, cool. All right. I'm prepared, I guess. Like, you know, um, and I've had very weird relation. I've had weird things where I'm like added in different comments and people are just like, you know, I want my my birthday wish is to hang out with Lauren Walsh art. And I'm like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> you know? Like, and being a female too in the digital space is kind of like, so is this like what hmm, how how serious do I need to take this? You know? <laughs> Which variety of hangout are we talking about? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's creepy anyway you cut it. Like I don't think that there's a way to hang that out the window where it's not like what is that? Um mm-hmm. But this is, a, I think, a, a good segue uh, into some other concepts that we wanted to talk to you about, you know, uh, specifically these arenas of, of marketing and personal branding. And um, these are two concepts that are often thought of as four letter words. They're they're dirty, they're tainted. And after, you know, a lot of what we've just been talking about, uh, you can see why outside of the sleazy slick car salesman kind of thing that is typically associated with marketing and branding, you know, out this outside of that, there's all of this like negative social media fallout kind of stuff that, that you can um, fall or run aground on whatever it is. Uh, How do you straddle that between like, this is a necessary evil. This is something, you know, that, that I do. um, And keeping yourself out of that mindset of like, oh God, this is terrible for my soul and I'm a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> um, so specifically on like the marketing side of stuff, I think that that's, that's more so um, like, I'm never going at when it's, when it's, when it's with marketing, it's more about that beginning stage of, who are you? How do you present yourself to the internet? How do you present yourself to clients? How do you present yourself at a convention? Um, and it kind of, um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like we I, I, specifically like the story I remember is when I went to school for English, I had to take a lot of courses in like literary theory and whatever. Not whatever. I actually really liked that stuff. I should have known I was gay when I went to do queer theory. And I was like, really, Lauren, you you took queer theory and you didn't know. <laughs> but that's besides the point. Um, um, but yeah, so uh, I, this course, like this guy was like talking, he was kind of like, he was older, I would say, um, you know, he was probably like Gen X kind of age, old Gen X age. And, like, kind of right after Boomer kind of level. What is these words I'm using? Um, but <laughs> he's a good, good way. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and he was talking about how logos had taken over the world. And I'm looking at him in school and I'm like, bro, all I've known is logos. What are you talking about? Like, so there's this kind of this transition where... Branding and marketing has become such an intense thing that we don't even know it's there anymore. And it's just a constant background noise. So like, if I'm talking about branding for an artist, I'm talking about like, hey, have a consistent view, like have a consistent visual narrative across your platforms. Make sure your website looks the same. Make sure that your website looks like your Etsy page, if you can make it look like that. Um, make sure your business cards and your packaging for your prints all fits the specific brand narrative of your artwork. Um, personally for me, I like to use like a lot of black and white because I like to let my artwork do most of the talking, you know? Um, but that's a big thing in branding of just like, you know, some of the greatest, um, artists out there. I mean, like, it's just, it's, perfection across the board like someone had the time to like go and like do that branding for that person um for the marketing side of things it's kind of we're in this age now where the internet can sniff out the internet can sniff out um disingenuous community building in an instant like if you're not if you're really not into that fandom, they're going to tell, like they will know. And like, they're just kind of like, yeah, you're just kind of doing this because that's what everyone else is doing. Right. Um, and so, you know, make sure you're staying in the things you actually want to do and not just like, Hey, D and D's hot right now. I'm going to jump on that train. I would like you to, I appreciate, like, I want you to, I want you to experience the glory that is Dungeons and Dragons and all TTRPGs and not just Dungeons and Dragons. And you should try out other systems. Um, but yeah, like, you know, experience those different things. Um, but like the marketing side of things is not necessarily like marketing in that, like, kind of like, ah, yeah, we're going to go and we're going to make this poster. We're going to make millions, like that kind of vibe, you know, um, it's making sure that you have a consistent narrative, like that your voice is the same across platforms, like that you're, um, like, you know, sharing your work with stuff and actually having launches and um, creating that kind of uh, narrative. I see a lot of artists now who um, they actually keep a lot of their prints as like limited runs because it actually like generates more people to want to buy content. And that's like a consistent trend I keep seeing. Um, I'm also very... I actually had a period of time where I was trying to become a graphic designer and a UX and UI person. Cause it was just like, 
I, I was like, I want to do art. I don't know if this is going to work out. And I really like took classes in this stuff and like really dove into it. And I try I actually went up to other little companies and I was like, Hey, can I do your logo for you? And they were like, yeah, sure. Um, and it got to a point where I was like, why am I not doing this for myself? Like I should be doing this for me. I should be doing user research for myself. Like I want to figure out what my followers want from me and um, what do I want for myself and how do I make that happen? Um, but I will say that having a large following, I am deeply indebted and grateful to my followers. And I never once, I never once view it as like too much as a burden. It is very much a like, thank you for following me. Thank you for liking my artwork. Like, thank you for supporting me. Like, you have no idea how much you've changed my life. And that's the truth of it is like, there is an intense amount of gratitude. And I try to offer um, as much back to the community as I can, but there also is only so much I can give. <laughs> I want to yeah. jump, jump on real quick. Uh, the idea of perceived value with a limited edition prints. Um, that was something Gavin, a, a previous guest of ours had um, done an entire article on where he started to do a, a master print for each run. And I would suggest even like doing like a quote unquote first print because people like being first, right? So yeah. that's just something that people could jump to and uh, attach value to inst mm -hmm. instantly. Cost you nothing. Yeah. I mean, actually making yourself, um, creating value for yourself like that is really, is a big thing. And, and that's not a bad thing. There are just some people who want to collect that. Like there are people who are collectors and if they want like, why not give that to them, you know, give that opportunity to them. Um, and it also benefits you too, but this is also kind of like that price point thing, right? Where you can have that, that higher end print that's a limited run, but you still have the $20 prints that anyone can buy. So you're not kept out of the loop, but there are certain things that are like limited run of things. Like for me, my biggest regret was actually taking the Mighty Nine print and making it a limited run because I didn't know that that print was going to take off the way that it did. And um, a lot of people have just been like, oh, we'll just take it off the limited run. Like, it's okay. And I'm like, yeah, but not in my mind. Like, I told these people this is a limited run. I, like, what am I going to do? Come out and be like, guess what, guys? It's not a limited run anymore. Like, then you, like, lose all your credit, you know? You just got to draw um, something similar, I guess, right? Yeah. <laughs> I am working on a, a season finale Mighty Nine poster for uh, New York Comic Con, so that'll be get ready, people. <laughs> what uh, were some of your earlier experiences in learning about these concepts? You 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 mentioned that foray into doing you know logo design for other people, and I'm sure probably some of the work at the logistics company kind of played a little bit of into this. But you know, in terms of like resources and like uh, hands-on experience, I guess I would, I would say, what were some things that you were using to figure out even terms like, uh, what was user research? I think was, yeah, what you user said? Research, yeah, yeah. I, like, like all of the terminology and weird little things that you don't even, aren't even aware exists until you start learning about them. Yeah. I, um, I I just like kind of like fell down a rabbit hole on YouTube. I think the the one that I I really kind of was just like oh oh okay okay like it explained a lot of different stuff was uh, the future without an e. 
I liked his stuff. I mean, sometimes he can be a little bit of an asshole at times, but that's besides the point. Um, but yeah, no, I liked his stuff. It was, it, it kind of opened up that whole side of graphic design and user research and UI and UX and user experience. Um, also a big thing that actually taught me that in a way that I didn't know was working at Starbucks. All of Starbucks is user experience. That entire position of working at Starbucks is all user experience. That is what you are getting paid to do. You are making not that good of a latte. <laughs> I said it. I love Starbucks. I love Starbucks. But let's be honest. Your phone's not on point, okay? Your microphone collapses a lot. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, no. User experience to me was Starbucks. And Starbucks was a masterclass in that. And trying to... Un like understand like their the way they branded stuff and like the way that they presented their their content that they were trying to sell how they embraced the internet in a way that you know as a barista i was just like god damn it but you know embracing the secret menu embracing the pink drinks and embracing all that kind of stuff um but also starbucks was also the place where i learned a lot about just like people just will have an opinion about you and you can't do anything like i had this one experience where this guy, the Starbucks had announced that you couldn't have a gun in, in the store. This guy came in, literally came in. He's like, I got a gun on me. What are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. Have a great day. Call <laughs> like, the <you> cops. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, oh, it's a gun. Oh, you know, like, I, whatever. <laughs> like, dude, I'm making your drink for $7.25 an hour. Get fucked. Get out. Like, it's just like, you know, it's. Um, but yeah, so, uh, sorry, I just got really aggressive because that guy pissed me off so bad. It's been years. I still remember it. I get um, it. but yeah, so like Starbucks was the masterclass of user experience for sure. Um, in like just being around that. And this is also kind of like a big thing for me too, is like, Hey, yeah, you may be at Starbucks. You may be working at a logistics company. It doesn't mean you're not gaining experience in all these different little things that you can implement for yourself, for your own business in the future. And, you know, pay attention because you're learning lessons. And you don't even know it, you know. Um, but yeah, <laughs> some of what we've talked about so far um, almost. Tempts me to want to suggest to people like younger artists or less experienced artists. Um, probably more younger artists uh specifically people that haven't had too much experience like in a retail position maybe uh it's it's, it's tempting me to want to suggest get a retail job or get you know get a job that isn't related to art to start getting some of that type of experience but in a field where customer service is prioritized I don't know. Is that resonating with you or are you just like, no, yeah, that doesn't sound like I good mean, advice? <laughs> no, 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 no. I think that it, I guess the way to phrase that is if you're in a job, you can make that job work to your benefit in any way possible, make it a learning experience. And I don't even think at this point with the way that the economy is and stuff like that, like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, hell retail jobs now are paying more than I was getting paid. That's for sure given everything that's happening. I mean, obviously do what's right for your safety. If you can't, if you don't feel comfortable working in a retail job right now with COVID, don't do it, you know? But if you can, getting any kind of job will give you that education and different things. Like the logistics job for me taught me, A, how to organize my email, 
how to reply to emails in a consistent manner, how to con how to communicate with accounts receivable and how to communicate with invoicing, like how all of those email that that email um corporate experience like how much that actually influences how I run my business now and how I'm able to keep up with clients and how I'm able to keep track of stuff and time management and like all of that stuff is because of logistics because I worked at a trucking company you know and sometimes yeah you can take a course on that that's sure that's true but for me personally, I have to get in there nitty gritty and like really kind of make a process that works for me. Um, and to be honest, I've thought about it a lot of being like, hey, if my journey had been any different, would I have liked it as much? And honestly, I don't see my journey working any other way. Like each job I had that was not art related really helped me. Like, but I was also looking for those lessons too. I was actively in my mind being like, I need to apply this to how I'm going to make art work and how am I going to make my business work and stuff like that. And it's just been a thing that's always just been there for me, really. And your uh, background in English, maybe that helped you in some way when you're writing on in Twitter on 140 characters or less in a strength. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, honestly... English majors get a bad rap. And you know what? I am using my degree because if I hadn't had my my degree with English and the intensity of doing literary analysis and how to get that analytical about things and to process it all out and write everything out and have that thought process in my brain, I don't know if I'd be here. You know, um, English is just as important. Like, go English majors. Your degree means something, damn it. <laughs> I was just trying to slyly add in a question from the the, uh, the audience. Uh, Dave Crave, uh, Dave Cave Draws wants to know like uh, any specific tips you may have for uh, uh, crafting your tweets or other uh, social media posts that are like text heavy. Hmm. Does this go to branding? Hmm. Like where you? Uh, make no, sure you this is just the algorithm, really. Like this is more of just like if you're doing a text heavy tweet. It's better to just have like a thread of stuff, right? Um, sometimes I'll actually write all of the tweets out before I send them out sometimes. Um, but a lot of the times for me, like when I get really text heavy speed tweets, they're very emotional for me. And they're very like, this is a thing I'm passionate about, God damn it, you know? And like, and I'm just like going off, you know? Um, I would say for text heavy tweets, you know, it dep it really depends on the situation, um, but use the thread to your advantage, right? Um, and um, yeah, Twitter likes text speech. Like, uh, wow, that was even words. Uh, likes text heavy tweets sometimes. Um, if you can implement like a meme, that'd be great. Um, but also like take note of the room, read the room of Twitter, right? Like don't. Don't come out and like, if, if all of Twitter's, cause that happens all the time. Like you can see it happen all the time where all of Twitter is like, Hey, we're going to talk about this thing today. And this is what we're talking about. And if that's the case and you have, maybe you have something that you've been working on and you want to talk about that thing, join that conversation. Right. But, and I was, I'm thinking specifically of like black lives matter. When that conversation happened, that conversation happened. And anybody who was like 
speaking in a different uh, different topic was like, read the room, bitch, you know, <laughs> and like, you should not be promoting your work right now. This is not the conversation we're having right now. And you kind of have to respect Twitter's boundaries because Twitter has its own emotions and its own thing. And um, yeah, so if you have something you want to talk about, make sure it's kind of part of the conversation that's been going on at that point that people are interested in. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, we're talking about this today. So, yeah. That's a little uh, weird for me, though, because like, uh, I understand it entirely, but at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, not everybody's plugged into Twitter at all at all times. So they could just jump in and be like, oh, by the way, I want to talk about uh, this thing that happened at the supermarket today. And then people are jumping down their throat be like, no, we're not talking about that today. Don't you understand what we're, what we're into? And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, I just got back from the grocery store. But why? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That happened specifically to uh, a couple artists during Black Lives Matter where they were like, yeah, no, I'm going to keep drawing my artwork. And it was like, ooh, ooh, okay, ooh. It was, not, it was not a good time. I don't think that they deserved the hate that they got because no one really understood at the time what intensity that was going to be. And, and like looking back, yeah, like, hey, this is not the time to talk. I'm a white woman. I need to shut up and listen, you know, like... Yeah, no, we got some stuff we got to work through today. <laughs> like, I just stuff I didn't even know, you know? And um, sometimes that's just what happens with Twitter. I mean, sometimes I don't know. Like, it's it's impossible to know all the time. But sometimes when the conversation's happening, you know that that's what's going on. Um, but yeah. Also, our Twitter likes to rehash the same discourses over and over again. But that's besides the point. <laughs> like, so uh, how would you uh, go about uh, – let's, let's assume that it's a sunny day and there's no uh, heavy topics going on. Is there anything that like you can do as, as an easy go-to to uh, get people on your side and just like, – like something that you're actually genuinely interested in? So you're not uh, just jump, hopping on to the new D&D thing because it's that, that's, the new guide came out. You have nothing to do with – uh, you don't know anything about it because you're not in D and D. But let's assume that it's something that you're actually interested in. How do you utilize Twitter to your advantage? I was going to say that's assuming there's ever a sunny day on Twitter, but that's besides the point. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. Yeah. I mean, my go-to is usually Buff Ladies. That's my go-to. Sorry. Pretty. Pretty standard on that side. Of them. Um. But uh. Yeah. I think it depends too. Like I've had stuff where I wanted to announce certain things, but then, you know, um, the conversation got dominated by something else. And truthfully, you just retweeted another day. You tweeted another day. Don't retweet your work. I mean, retweet your work, obviously. But if you can do an actual post again, as opposed to taking an old tweet and then retweeting it again, I've at least noticed that that helps the algorithm a bit more. Um, but uh, yeah, so. You know, it's not the only time it's going to happen on Twitter. A lot of the times you can repost a lot of the stuff you've said and someone else will see it, right? Um, so just keep trying, basically. Uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Art Rain, I believe, uh, Rangan, I believe, was uh, she's mentioned uh, replying to your own thread so that they can see the old content and the new content side by side. Yes, yeah. If you reply to your old content, that's like a, a boot. Like a, I'm sorry. Wow. <laughs> I've been talking too long. Yeah, it is a boop. Um, yeah, it's a boop. <laughs> it's a little boop, <laughs> a little bump, basically, for like a thread and stuff. Um, but yeah, that can actually also kind of dominate 
Yeah, that's the wrong word. If you're tweeting about something throughout the day in the same thread, that can also drive engagement back to the original post as opposed to doing it all at once. Um, I've also noticed that too of like, hey, also this is another thought I had. Let me add that to the thread. And then it kind of, you know, um, takes on more stuff that way. So one of the other things that you have, one of the, uh, plates that you keep spitting uh, spinning spitting <laughs> spitting now I'm it's happening <laughs> now now it's happening to me you, you, I, I i caught the i caught the boop from you um, <laughs> so one of the other plates that you keep spinning is uh, teaching on the university at the university level you mentioned that before um can you talk a little bit about what the nature of that course is and to what degree things like marketing and branding come into that yeah, so I actually teach um, a business course, basically, uh, for illustration, for the illustration majors and for the um, animation and game arts majors. Um, essentially, it's an entire course of just like, um, I kind of come at it from the viewpoint of this is the course I wish I had in college. This is the course I wish that professors had actually given me and actually sat me down and said, hey, this is what the industry is actually like. And didn't kind of like put on this whole air of like the only way to make it in af after your major is to get a master's and then to get a, a, a PhD and then teach at a university. Right. Um, which a lot of fine art. I feel like a lot of fine art professors were pushing me that way. They were like, you should get your master's. You should get your PhD. You should teach. Like, and I was just like, yeah, no, that's not really what I, I want to do. But look at me now, I guess. Oh, shit. <laughs> damn it. They got me. <laughs> Sorry, that just occurred to me. Um, damn it. She got me. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I teach the course basically like all the stuff I wish I had known. So talking about contracts, talking about pricing. And what kind of pricing you do for each kind of project. And if you do it hourly, buyout, like all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, uh, talking about like new topics. Like I was able to talk about like NFTs with my, my, my students and be like, this is what this is. This is why this is what this is. And this is why Twitter hates it. And just being like, okay, this is what everything is there. Um, to me personally on NFTs, they're just glorified licensing. That's all it is. And to, in my personal opinion, burning a lot of energy just to license a product. Don't know really how I feel about that, but yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I talk about that kind of stuff. Um, and I actually do talk about self-care a lot too, because that's been a huge thing for me in my career where that is not mentioned. They don't actually talk about different stretches that you should be doing for your hand aside from just like shaking your hand out. Like how do you actually like make your ulnar nerve like go back into place so that you don't have numbness. Like, so I actually like go through that with my students. A lot of the times they're looking at me like you're teaching us stretches. And I'm like, just wait for it in 10 years. You'll know, you'll come back to me. <laughs> Nodding um, emphatic. and talking about that stuff and, and mental health and how to process that with your work and maintain yourself through all that. And, um, and yeah, and branding and really kind of sitting down with each student. Cause the issue specifically with illustration, it's a blanket term for so many different sectors of like 
children's illustration and licensing and product design and fantasy illustration and game design. Like it's so many different things under one umbrella. So I have to actually sit down with each student and be like, okay, what do you want to aim for? You know? And a lot of the times I don't know. And I have to basically be like, Hey, you need to pick a direction. Cause if you try to go for all of these things at once, you're going to run, you're going to run yourself ragged and you're going to burn out. So like focus on one for now, go parallel to it and transition over eventually. Right. Um, but yeah, that's kind of what the course is. It's just kind of, I mean, like, Hey, you want to go this direction? Let's talk money. Let's talk contracts. Let's talk invoicing, let's talk self-care, all that kind of stuff. So, um, there was a, a series of questions that I wanted to ask after that, but Don Lee anticipated a question that I had in mind for a little bit later. So let's just digress to it really quick. Um, yeah, why not? <laughs> he made a comment. He said, this sounds like the course that art colleges should have been teaching since the beginning of time, but don't. Um, and I share that curiosity about an art school. I'm just kind of using art school as like an umbrella term to cover a whole range of curriculum that has to do with art because you could be taking art classes at a college but not really like at an art school and then what type of art schools there are blah 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 the point is that um all of these kind of concepts that you're talking about you don't there isn't as much emphasis on that and i like why why do you think that is like why doesn't uh uh you know the um why doesn't cgma have a class on you know business and marketing and branding and stuff you know or art center in california you know why isn't that like a really prominent like class it's like we do this this is a thing you have to learn about i would say a big proponent of that is the fact that the industry keeps changing every three years so how can you teach what the industry is like right now and not be practicing in it. So if you have tenured, and, and this is no no shots fired at my full-time faculty that I work with, but it is kind of like, how can you know what the industry standard is right now if you're not in it? And um, I kind of, for me, the way I approach this is because I don't think everyone needs art school. I don't. I, 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 I love it when you do. And like, I think that that's great for some people. I think some people do need art school. They need that kind of regimented work. Other people probably don't. And um, for me, when I go into this course, I'm like, you have been programmed to think a certain way. I need to deprogram you. I need to tell you exactly like the way this industry is. And a big thing for me too, is that more is um, exclusively female non-binary students and for me specifically, like with my own passion is to be like, I'm a woman in the industry. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Like, I want you to succeed. There's too few of us in this industry. Like, um, I'll never forget my dad. He came to Keystone Comic Con with me and he came up to me and he walked around the con and he was like, Lauren, there's only one woman per aisle here. And I was like, yeah, dad, like, that's kind of what I'm up against right now is like, there's not many females help any like it's and this is no slight to like all of my like you know my my male fr like fans out there but like the, the female voice in a lot of these situations is like 
Ah. <laughs> you know? Um, so for me, I have a huge mission with more to be like, we're going to give this course to you. I want you to succeed. I'm going to give you everything in my, in my back pocket to do this. Um, but I think the big part is that a lot of the professors that are there, the professor that I took over, I actually knew him and he was, he is in uh, an illustration group that I was in and he was old. He was like 80 and like, he was still teaching them about fax machines in 2019 and I came in and I saw the course and he was like, Lauren, they need you. They need your voice. They need your youth. They need you in this to actually be like, let's revamp this. And I went in there and completely rewrit the whole syllabus and was like, we need an entire section on social media. We need an entire section on all of these other things. Like, you know, we're not just designing business cards and calling it a day. Like we need to actually talk about the business side of stuff and be open and honest. I also feel like money is not often talked about and a lot there's this kind of mentality in illustration and in in art in general that if you share any of your secrets someone will kind of replace you and i'm against that like i to me i'm like no 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 we need to get more people who actually like should be up here and it is a it is a um a door it's a hidden door that you don't, when you're out there on the outskirts of this industry, you're like, I want this, but there's no, there's no entry level position. There's no job to get. The only job I can get is at like a AAA studio. And like, how do I even get there? And for me, I'm just kind of like busting down the door and I'm like, sup bitch, let's go. <laughs> get in the car. We're going to get careers, you know? So, um, yeah. <laughs> Whenever someone talks about uh, an artist hiding their secrets, it makes me think back to uh, a friend of mine who went and visited uh, Wayne Reynolds at a convention. And then that guy just turned out to be a total shutdown as soon as he found out the other per- the person he was talking to was an artist who admired him and, and wanted to learn from him. He had just like totally closed the door. It, it had nothing to do uh, – it was a yeah. other guy, so it wasn't sexism. But it was still a, a flat out, uh, this is my work, and I don't want you to take my work from me. And the truth is, is that like, we all have our own voices and our own perspectives. And I, I just, I don't think it's fair. I mean, there's also a certain point where like, there's younger voices that need to be included in a lot of these tables, you know? And, um, like they deserve to be here as much as any of any of us do, you know? Um, there's a lot of new, it's like, how do you explain to somebody who hasn't grown up on the internet what it's like having grown up on the internet? You know, like my experience of, of being a nerd and, you know, being a child and being on AOL chat rooms that I should not have been on. <laughs> like, um, just like that kind of stuff, you know, like how do you explain that to somebody who saw it happen, but didn't grow up in that thing? And those kind of voices deserve to be heard, you know? Not just, like, internet voices. You know what I mean. But like, younger voices with different experiences need to be heard. Especially given the pandemic, y'all. Like, I can't wait for the stories to come out of this. It's going to be great. Oh, you said it. The um, true crime stories out of the pandemic, honey. <laughs> so, if people aren't able to attend your class, or they're in an area where a class like yours isn't available... 
do you have suggestions for what kind of resources they should be looking for or where they can go? Um, I would say usually from people that you admire. Um, also creating a network of people that you can communicate with and be like, Hey, is this like this for you? What have you learned? Like that kind of thing. Um, networking, that kind of side of stuff. Um, I have a really great group of friends where we all kind of like co-work together and a lot of them are in comics and I'm in um, fantasy and stuff like that. Um, but we all kind of communicate to one another and pass on jobs to one another and like that kind of stuff. Um, the other thing would be take courses, like just go and try stuff out, like take courses in business and like just invoicing, you know, like, um, and the other thing too, is just try and fail. Like, just fail, like literally try and actually just bomb it. <laughs> like, you know, like, I mean, maybe not that intensely, but like, you have to take chances, you have to go out and try stuff. And like, art specifically is about failure, where you're constantly pushing your limit. And you always get to a point where like, I can't do this. And you you're like, you know what, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go after this again, you know, and it's just a constant brushing up against this, like this failure and, and learning from your experiences. And I really don't think there's any other way to learn this other than to keep trying. And I wouldn't know how to invoice things or email if I hadn't worked at a trucking company, you know? So like, keep trying, keep learning. Um, I don't really feel like there's any major resource out there for all this kind of stuff, but um, you know, be hungry. Keep keep looking at stuff. You know, like, hey, I want to. I mean, even me right now. Hey, I kind of want to like rethink my scheduling. I'm gonna go take some courses on scheduling and like, you know, see what you can do like that. Have you considered doing either an online course or whether it's a pre-recorded or something that you do live? I have actually. Um, I love teaching at the at the college level. Um, but I don't think it's fair to keep all of my knowledge to just 15 students a year, you know? And um, I would like to do more courses. Um, the issue for me right now is just uh, what time, <laughs> like I, it may be a thing that's like in a year or two. Right. Um, but as it stands right now, like I'm booked out till November. Like how, what time am I going to make a course, you know? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I would like to eventually. Yeah. Um, we're coming into our, our wrap up now. There's a lot that we didn't get to. Um, there's so many places that I wish that we had gone timing, just being what it is before we started uh, this conversation, you were gracious enough to uh, preemptively agree to a second appearance. And I really think that it would be great to uh, take you up on that offer in the future. Um, but for now, if I'm we muted. can, I forgot. <laughs> uh, yeah, no worries. What were you going to say? I was going to say, it's hard to get all this stuff done in two hours. You know, like I'm teaching whole courses on this stuff. So it's, yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Well, there's even more that, that I would have liked to have dug into on the, the the fan art to you know industry mm -hmm. transition you know we, we definitely we, we got there i feel good about it mostly but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it, it would yeah. definitely be great to have you back um but uh you know going into sort of like a few of the final questions i'm i'm curious you you, you said that you're 
kind of experimental with your your career what's next uh if you gave yourself a five-year projection where would you love to see yourself well considering what's happened in the past year i have no idea anymore <laughs> that's that's fair that's fair it's a little bit of yeah. a loaded question in that regard honestly though i would love um i've already achieved a lot this year of like working with wizards of the coast and and with critical role as much as i have and moving out into like my own apartment in Philadelphia and just kind of like making it on my own as like, you know, a single, a single person trying to make it on my own and stuff. And that, that enough in itself is just like a, a monumental feat. Um, but what I would really love to do eventually is I would love to actually do a magic the gathering card. That would be my, <laughs> please wizards. I'm already working for you. Let me do your magic gathering cards. Um, and, uh, and the other thing too, would actually be to get into a spectrum book eventually. I, that to me would just be like, holy shit. Like I'm, I'm at the big boy table now. Like this isn't just like some girl who likes buff ladies on Twitter. Right. And, um, yeah, that would be, that would be some of my major goals that I would like to achieve eventually. Well, if you're listening wizards. Uh, all, yeah. all of you <laughs> yeah. get, get to it, get on it. Uh, where would you like people to go to find out more about you, more about your work? Uh, you can find me, uh, anywhere at Lauren Walsh art, um, on pretty much any platform. Um, and I'm really more active on Twitter mostly. Um, I'm, I'm on every platform, but like, if you like want to hear my thoughts about like a lot of industry stuff, usually where I like go into like different threads on this stuff is, is on Twitter. Um, I think last portfolio day, I actually did like a whole AMA on like the industry and like answered a lot of questions. So, um, yeah, you never know. Moose, was there any follow-up questions you had that we, we didn't get to? Uh, just a tiny one. Uh, no, just kidding. It's gonna be a very long one. Uh, so <laughs> Uh, we did touch on briefly that you had uh, upped your prices eventually. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody who is um, struggling to figure out how much they can charge, even though they are producing high quality work? That's a good question. I would say um, try it out, throw a number out there, see what happens. Um, you know, <laughs> there's nothing worse than shooting a number that you think is really high and they automatically go, yeah, that's fine. And you're like, shit, there was more money on the table. God damn it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say um, it's hard. Cause like some clients actually have very set prices on what they charge. Um, especially the big, the big boys, they're very set on their prices. Um, but you know, other clients, you know, you kind of start to get the sense of like what these jobs are supposed to be. A big one too would be the handbook, the, um, the, uh, the guilds, guild, uh, guild, graphic artists guild, majab. Um, <laughs> uh, that actually has a lot of different prices for what certain projects should cost. Um, I will say that a lot of the prices are usually on the higher end. Like if you were pricing something for Wizards of the Coast, so, you know, adjust that to certain maybe different clients and like what their expectations might be. Um, but, you know, also you're worth it. So do it. You know, <laughs> um, If you're in a situation where you have a repeat client and they gave you a lower price, 
there may be need to be a very difficult conversation about like raising your prices and talking about money is never easy. It is hard. And when you have to do it, like with somebody that you've been working with for a long time, it may mean actually losing the client and to be truthful, it is better to do one portrait for a thousand dollars than 10 portraits for a hundred, right? Like even if you're losing clients and you have it at a higher price range, um, I think that that's worth it more so than doing 10 for instead of one, basically. Uh, but that would be my answer. But it's also case by case. So take my take my advice with a grain of salt. Apply it to where you need to apply it to. But yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people just don't underestimate. They strongly underestimate how much money is out there for them. And yeah. so they are comfortable with sending out an, an, uh, an, effort, uh, an offer that they know that will be accepted rather than trying to go for more and then having to negotiate down. I mean, I guess that really the good way of saying this is that usually if you're doing a full page, most of the time you're getting around 1200, maybe more like 1500 or something like that. You should be dealing in thousands. Like it's much more money than you think um, that's out there. However, you do also have to have the portfolio. So there comes that kind of juxtaposition of like how much of your portfolio do you need to work on and, and be honest with yourself. Like, do you need to work on your portfolio? Cause Lord knows I did. And I got straight up decline and I was like, cool, cool, cool. All right. I'll work on it. Challenge accepted, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, be honest with yourself and be like, Hey, do I need to work on this? What can I charge? And ask friends. This is why having a network of other artist friends is a huge huge asset is to actually talk about money with one another. Like those are the people I talk to when I'm like, guys, I'm thinking about charging this. And every single one of them's like, no, add 500 onto that. And I'm like, I'll add 200. Let's not go too far. You know, That's doing the negotiation for the client though. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what I, that's what I normally do a lot. Uh, Joey, the saint in chat. Um, predicted your future. Quote, oh. <laughs> holy shit, just finished my Magic the Gathering card and got my first death threat today. Winning. <laughs> oh, man, I hope not. <laughs> well, that's just because you're going to be doing the redesign of murder for the... Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're going to give a na no-name critical role fan... The, the, you know, the reigns to like a, a major loved character and all the dudes are going to be like, critical roles and fading magic the gathering. And I'll be like, God damn it. Shut up, Twitter. <laughs> well, the prompt was for a buff lady to be do doing it. So <laughs> who else are you going to call for a buff lady that is supposed to give by panic to all women across the Internet other than me? <laughs> by panic. I, that's fucking <laughs> awesome. I would like that on a T-shirt. Oh, just, yeah. just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, oh, shit. Um, oh no <laughs> the bots are coming um our trademark final question lauren uh aside from work and personal projects what's one thing that's happening in the world right now that you're excited about can i be really like basic and just be like i'm glad vaccines are out there <laughs> legit i man. i don't know i'm 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 really excited for things to come back, um, obviously within time, but I'm just, I'm so over, I didn't, I've always considered myself an introvert until the pandemic happened. And then I went, oh no, honey, 
you need people. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think like everything reopening again is something I'm really looking forward to. Um, and uh, yeah. <laughs> we just need to get together a hundred million that have two of us not to get vaccinated to get vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> in time. Uh. In time. Um, well, Lauren, thank you again so much. This has been uh, great fun. So much good information. And thank you for agreeing to be on again. And we look forward to that. Anytime. <laughs> right on. I will wave goodbye here. And